Well, I wonder what causes you to question God, um, to ask those, those why questions of him. God, why me? Why this? Why now? And I think it's normally the difficult times, isn't it? Um, perhaps a broken relationship, uh, a frustration at work or at home, that nagging, ongoing illness, perhaps the death of a loved one. And they, those tough times cause us to call out, why God, why? And this morning, as we rejoin a- Abraham uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 22, he's somewhere over 100 now, and um, by his side is Isaac, his dear son, that we know he's waited so long for, that miraculous gift from God. And if you were paying attention, um, we heard almost straight away that God asks, you know, almost a ridiculous thing of Abraham to give him up, to sacrifice Isaac in a truly disturbing, barbaric way. And I guess as uh, the passage was read, we asked some of those same questions in our mind. You know, why God? Why did you ask Abraham this? Why something so awful? Why does Abraham go along with it? Well, I hope we're going to answer some of these questions this morning. Uh, We're going to work through uh, the points on the little yellow um, uh, sheet that was found in your service sheet. And uh, we're going to ask first of those points, ask them of Abraham. What did they mean for Abraham? And then we're going to revisit them at the end for some application for ourselves. What might the same things mean for us in Claygate in the 21st century? But first then, a fearsome test. And it sounds pretty obvious, but we mustn't miss the first few words of verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. So there are two things to note. The first is that this is a test, and the second that this is for Abraham. And I think we'd probably waste quite a lot of time if we uh, sat here this morning and thought, um, well, I wonder what I would do if God asked me to sacrifice one of my sons, one of my daughters. Because I don't think he will. Um, But this is for Abraham. So it's a specific thing for Abraham. And really the question being asked is, will Abraham be faithful? Will he pass the test God sets him? And if you uh, paid attention as um, the reading was read, you'll have noticed that it's in really tender terms God speaks to Abraham. It seems strange almost. Because he's asking him to do something so awful. But he says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him. But why, God? Why? Why Isaac? Abraham's waited so long for him. Why something so barbaric? And Abraham doesn't ask one of those questions. Not that are recorded here anyway. And I've looked into this a little bit because that was what puzzled me as I looked at this passage. Why does Abraham not put up any fight? Some people say it's because child sacrifice wasn't uh, the alien concept it is for us now in the 21st century, that it was going on um, in some of the lands around where Abraham lived. So maybe it wasn't that strange for Abraham. I'm not sure that's quite right. I'm more convinced by an argument Tim... Keller gives in uh, a really helpful book, Counterfeit Gods. Perhaps some of you have read this. Um, But he kind of argues that throughout the history 
of the Israelite people, that this wasn't a new kind of thing for them. And actually, um, that all the way through the Israelite history, the Israelites are left in no doubt that actually they are a sinful people and they come before a holy and just God. And the problem of their sin needs to be dealt with and it needs to be dealt with by sacrifice. And in, um, amongst the Israelite people, that collective sin was represented as being upon the first son of the family. So the family's sin was represented by the first son. And that first son had to be redeemed or had to be ransomed or else he was forfeited, as it were. He was forfeited to God until he was bought back because there was a debt, a debt to eternal justice, a debt of sin. You'll remember from our studies in Exodus that 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 was most kind of clearly and frighteningly shown um, amongst the Egyptians when when Moses was pleading with Pharaoh, "Let, let God's people go. And they had all the plagues, and the final plague was the death of the firstborn son to every Egyptian family. Well, it's horrific, isn't it? But verse 1 tells us this is a test. God is testing Abraham. So what's the point? And I think the point is there uh, in verse 12. I think that's where the answer comes. Second half of verse 12. God says, Now I know that you fear God, the angel of the Lord. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham's being tested to see if he fears God. Not even if he loves God, actually, but if he fears God. And I think in this instance, probably the best way to understand that is, will God take Abraham seriously? Will he put God first above everyone and everything that's precious to him and listen to him and obey him? Or has Abraham let Isaac, um, the apple of his eye, uh, become even more than that, become the number one uh, thing or, or person in his life? He's even more important than God. Don't forget, Abraham has left his his family and his friends and his home to follow God, to follow these promises he was given many, many years ago of of blessing and, of course, uh, many, um, many people through him. And then we're told, as these promises get fleshed out, that indeed those, those people, those descendants, would come through Isaac, his son, Well, had his son become the longing of his heart, the joy of his soul, and all that waiting and wandering and sacrifices, had they been for God, or had they been to get Isaac? Had they been for God, the giver, or had Abraham just wanted the gift? That's what's at stake. Would Abraham fear God? Secondly, then, Abraham's fearful trust. We pick up the story in verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham gets up, and sets off. The journey apparently is some 40 miles, and it took them uh, three days, what must have been a heartbreaking three days. Eventually, the servants, verse 5, are stood down. From now on, Isaac will carry the wood for the burnt offering. Abraham has the fire and the knife for the sacrifice. Uh, Isaac's old enough to notice something's missing. Verse 7, Where's the lamb? Abraham says the Lord will provide. And so the story kind of slowly trundles on, seemingly 
uh, to its gruesome, inevitable conclusion. Abraham builds the altar, stacks up the wood on top of it, and then he must have seized his son, bound him with cords. I wonder if he was crying as he struggled to secure Isaac on top of the wood. Was he shaking as he lifted the knife above his head? Abraham! Abraham! The voice comes from heaven. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Well, I guess there was a bit more than just a release of breath on Abraham's behalf. Um, But he looks up and uh, sees there's a ram caught in the thicket. And there will be a sacrifice after all. And Abraham renames the place the Lord will provide. But how could he have done it? How could Abraham have feared God, have trusted God enough to obey him so unreservedly? And I think there are two points to this. First, that Abraham trusted God's power to keep his promises. And secondly, that Abraham trusted God to provide a substitute. And the first bit we get in the New Testament Um, As an aside, it's always helpful if we don't really truly understand what a passage is going on about to see if it's mentioned in the New Testament. And this one is. It's in um, Hebrews chapter 11. So perhaps if you want to turn to page uh, 1209. We'll find out some more about Abraham. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. It says this. By faith, Abraham, when, tested, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Look at verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. See, Abraham is held up um, as a hero of the faith here in this great chapter in Hebrews because he's got great faith. And sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that's a kind of other kind of strange entity, faith, that Abraham was given by God, which meant he could be this special person who, you know, floated along on clouds and could do seemingly impossible things that we never could. But that's not true. Abraham is held up as a hero of the faith because he's got such great faith because his faith is so simple, I think. It's so simple. It was simple trust in he who had made the promises, that he who had made them was powerful and loving to keep them. Basically, he said, if I act in obedience and do what God commands, then God, therefore, must act in faithfulness to his promises. And for Abraham, he had the promise of descendants through Isaac. He was told that. So Abraham reasoned simply, if God takes Isaac from me, then he must give Isaac back to me. That's the reasoning, I think. If he takes Isaac's life, he will have to give it back to keep his promise. Secondly, Abraham trusts God to provide a substitute. Look at verse uh, 5 back in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we 
will come back to you. He seemed to understand, didn't he, before the event happened that both he and Isaac would be returning. And there's something similar in verse 8. He says to Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And we know, don't we, at just the right time, God stayed Abraham's hand. Isaac was unharmed. And God provided a ram in his place. There would be a sacrifice, but it wouldn't be at Abraham's cost. The provision was to be God's. So, what about us? We've seen Abraham had you know, a, a really fearsome, awful test. And um, I stand in front of you um, conscious that you know, there are members in our church family who are going through really, really tough times at the moment. And um, once I, whilst I wouldn't suggest by any means that all kind of suffering we, we face, we can directly see a test from God in it, at the same time when we're going through those tough times, we do feel our, sometimes our faith is being tested, being shaken, sometimes rocked to its very foundations by the pain we're experiencing. And I think that's when we ask the questions we thought of earlier. Why God? Why me? Why this? And uh, friends, if some of you are um, suffering those tough times at the moment or uh, you're friends with people who are, then um, I want to encourage you that when everything seems uh, shaky, seems insecure, seems painful, is painful, to trust God, to trust his goodness, to trust his promises for you, to trust his plan for salvation. More on that practically in just a moment. But for others of us, uh, I wonder if many of the disappointments and frustrations we face in life is because we've got the balance wrong. We've spent so long, so much time, so much money, so much investment into trying to get a level of of joy or uh, satisfaction or security out of things which will never provide them for us. Only God can provide it. Only God can give that to us. And sometimes those are quite temporal, um, kind of trivial things, aren't they? Um, we can fall into the trap of you know, investing too much in our houses to really uh, you know, get a special um, glow when, when people come round and tell us how great our house looks. We spend so long thinking about you know, what curtains would look great with the light we've just bought or whatever else. But more serious things, relationships, um, whether they're with our children, uh, whether they're with friends, whether they're even with our husband or wife. And we put so much weight on those, on people. We fall into the trap of uh, looking for our identity, looking for our fulfillment, our satisfaction, our security in a person who will always let us down, no matter how great, you know, you, you will look to me, and I'm sure you're great husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and daughters and, and, and sons, but we're sinful. We're compromised people. We'll disappoint those around us. We'll hurt them. We'll leave them. And that can cause awful resentment. We can say, well, I've invested so much for my children. Don't they know how hard I've worked for them to put them through these schools? And now they don't even seem to like me. They certainly don't listen to me. How could he treat me like this? 
when I've given him absolutely everything I could. Or else we can be like Abraham and uh, we can look at these difficult times and try and have something of God's perspective to accept that perhaps God has decided to take that thing, that person, that relationship away from us. And if that's right, it's not easy, is it? It might be really hard, but uh, God might be calling us to pray to him. God, you seem to be wanting me to live without something I thought I couldn't or I hoped I would never have to. But I have you. If we're Christians, that's true, isn't it? I have all the love and, and status and health and security I need in you. So we face tough times. But to face them like Abraham, we need to uh, do the same things he did, to have the same trust he had. And as we said, this is in two parts. The first is to trust God's promises. And as I was preparing, uh, I thought, obviously, you know, there's a great range of people in church, and I've, I can't guess how each of you uh, deals with difficult times. How do you encourage yourselves? How do you comfort yourselves? when times are tough, when you're frustrated, when you're sad. And if you're a Christian, then how do you do that with others? Um, you know, it, I'm sure there have been times when all of us have said these kind of things. Um, Don't worry, it will all get better. Or I'm sure it won't turn out quite as badly as you think. And we say them and we cringe because we think those words are so hollow. They almost have no meaning. Friends, I hope, we, I hope we cling to the promises God gives us in his word. I hope we share those with others who are going through tough times. Have a, have a think just for a few seconds. What is your favorite promise in the Bible? What is your favorite promise in the Bible? I wonder if you've got one or if you've got lots or can't even think of one. Um, perhaps it'd be a really good idea this week to uh, learn a promise, to learn it off by heart, because you can't cling on to things that you, you don't know. And uh, as we prayed at the beginning, the word of God is the sword of the spirit. It's powerful. We need it by our side. Some of my favorite promises are these. 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Revelation 3, verse 11. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one may take away your crown. Romans 8, 32. He, did not, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And another great one in the same chapter. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are great promises that we have. We need to hold on to them. Why don't you go home over lunch uh, this afternoon and just share with your family what your favorite promise in the Bible is. Finally, uh, like Abraham, we've got to trust in God for the provision of a substitute. 
Abraham probably couldn't see the event to which uh, this passage in Genesis is pointing to. But of course we know. Do you remember um, when Jesus was baptized, the voice came from heaven. You are my son, my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And we're told Jesus was the sacrificial lamb even before the cross happened. As John the Baptist saw Jesus in the distance, he calls out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was a beloved son. But Jesus wasn't going to be spared from the sacrifice. Remember, as he was laid on top of wood, there would be no intervention. As he had nails hammered through his hands and feet, as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no voice from heaven. Silence. As the words in the song say, the father turns his face away. You see, Jesus was Isaac's substitute, just as he is ours. The, 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 the ram could no more deal with the problem of Isaac's uh, sins and Isaac's family sins than Isaac could, actually. Only a sinful human could be reckoned uh, to die in our place. Only he could be sufficient. Christ died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. And that's, of course, as we finish, the brilliant uh, message of the Christian faith, isn't it? That each of us stand before the same God, uh, the holy, um, just God, And in our natural state, God sees exactly how we are. The things we want to hide from even those closest to us, our pride, our selfishness, our greed, our envy, our half-heartedness, our unfaithfulness. Those are just some of the things I, I thought of of myself. And God sees those and he hates them. He hates sin. And the only way we can have that relationship with a holy and just God is to have the problem of our sin dealt with. And that's why the cross is so glorious, so beautiful, uh, that Jesus was to be the perfect sacrifice, the substitute uh, for you and for me once for all of us.